Our sermon this morning um, will come from a couple of places, and I want to give you a heads up and let you turn to the first place we'll look at, in particular in the text, and that's Second John 9. So why don't you turn there. I know if you've looked at the bulletin or other information about it, you thought John fourteen six. You thought right. Uh, but it'll be a moment or two before we get there. So if you will uh, go to that place I just mentioned, Second John 9. This morning, I'm using as a subject, Jesus Christ, the only way to God. <laughs> that shouldn't even be uh, in dispute. Uh, it certainly isn't for those of us who know Jesus Christ, who know the truth. That's not a controversial statement. Uh, that's a statement of fact, that he is the only way to God. However, I read a public opinion poll recently entitled A Religious Views and Practices Poll. It revealed that 60% of self-identified born-again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39 said that Jesus isn't the only way to God. The only way to salvation. They said that Buddha... Muhammad and Jesus are all valid paths to salvation. Now we immediately rebut that. We understand that that's an error. A monumental error. An eternal error. To believe that Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus are equated in terms of of salvation. I want to reiterate that the responders to the survey claim to be Christians. That was the stunning thing to me. That anyone who could claim to be a follower of Jesus would demote him. Would put him on the level with ordinary sinful fallen men and claim that he is no better than uh, Buddha or Muhammad. They deny, in doing this, the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus with respect to salvation. Furthermore, their affirmation is a denial of what Jesus said himself. In fact, it contradicts what Jesus stated explicitly when he said that he is the sole way to God. True Christianity and true Christians do not claim that Jesus is, get this, a way. There you go, sister. The way. Amen. Everybody ought to say amen if you know the Lord. Now, early Christians understood this. There was no ambiguity in their thinking. There was no muddiness in their minds. They understood this as in terms of our salvation. In fact, um, those early Christians, they were identified as the way. They were identified as the way because they belonged to Jesus who said, I am the way. And you can see this record of this identification of these early believers, the first century saints, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2. 
in the chapter 19 in verses 9 and verse 23. Just write them down and look at them and contemplate them and meditate on them later. Those early Christians were self-identified by Jesus' claim and said, we belong to the way. Belong to the way. During one of his sermons, Peter was clear about the exclusivity and uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That, that is a really clear enunciation of the reality that there is a uniqueness about Christ. There is exclusivity about Christ in terms of getting into heaven. No one else, he says. No one else. No other name given under heaven that is on earth among men. By which we must be and must that day is a necessity, divine necessity. That's what the word means in Greek. The necessity of salvation is by no one else and no other name than the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given only one person on earth by which men may be saved, not several. They raise their hand says, I'm away. He said, put your hand down, you're a fraud. There's only one way. And they have to believe in that person, his name. People must believe in him. They must have an explicit faith in Christ that is explicit, that is clear, is detailed. There is no confusion that he is the one. They must know who he is. He is eternal son and God, son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Who became a man and he, in that what he did, he died on a cross in the place for all who would trust him as Savior and Lord. He's the only one. It's an affront to God. To even suggest that there's someone other than Jesus is the way of salvation. That's an affront to God. It's a blasphemous statement. Now Christians... In my lifetime, have held this truth. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when Christians used to do this. They'd hold that index finger in the air and they would be pointing to heaven and looking up and they were saying, one way. I grew up seeing that. They understood that there was one way to heaven. That, that's something that needs to be revived, right? One way to heaven. In a pluralistic society where it seems that all religions in the minds of the unconverted, even some who claim to be converted, want to put on equal level all these different ways and persons to come to salvation. Christians need to say, wait a minute, wait, nope, nope, nope. One way. We have to take an uncompromising stand. One way. One way. And we have to hold to this commitment to this cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, we cannot shunt this aside and say, well, maybe that's what we believe. That's true for us. No, it's true for anybody. 
It's just not Christian truth. It's universal truth. It's the truth that God has given that Christ is the only way. And if anybody thinks somehow, some way they can get to God apart from him, they're eternally wrong. And this truth about Jesus Christ is not an academic matter. You know, academic stuff, you know what that's like. You've been to school, and there are things you learn in school. Well, you learned it, you passed the test, you regurgitated what the professor taught you, and you got a passing grade and all of the rest, but you haven't yet used it. <laughs> Go and tell the truth. You know that's the truth. You say, what did I learn all this stuff? And it hasn't helped me one iota. Now, let me tell you, this is not academic truth. This is truth that is real, it is personal, it's eternal, it's consequential to every single human being. It's not academic truth. It concerns one's soul. Concerns, concerns one's eternal destiny. Now, you know, I wouldn't be saying this if it weren't so. It, this is not my opinion. This is not a preacher's opinion. I get this from God himself. And we stand four square on the word of God, right? God says it. And since God says it, I'm going to believe it. God says it, that settles it, and it's up to us to believe it. Now, I ask you to turn to 2 John 9. And I want, you to I want you to see in stark black and white terms how John addresses this. How he addresses those people in the survey that I quoted earlier in this message. John is unambiguous. There's no cloudiness in his expression there is no mist, mist. It is clear what it says. Now, let me just read this verse. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Is that not clear? Second John 9. Christ said to the church, they claimed, well, we've gone further than what you poor dumb Christians have gotten. It was incipient Gnosticism. Gnosticism from the Greek term gnosis meaning knowledge. They had an advanced or higher knowledge, so they claimed. So here they slither into the church like serpents and snakes do. And they say, listen, we have advanced knowledge. We know more. We know more. But their teaching was not biblical. Their teaching was inconsistent with divine revelation. Hence, John writes what he does in verse 9. Anyone who goes too far. Let's focus on three words. Goes too far. One word in the original language, prago. Prago means to go ahead. It's the idea of progressing. It's going beyond what has been understood. It is to go beyond the bounds of Christian teaching. It is to go beyond the established bounds of Christian teaching that God has established in his word. In other words, God has given us his truth. His word is the truth, and it is within that truth that we have to stay. His word is a boundary. 
it keeps us from going out of bounds into false teaching and error and lies. When we stay within the bounds of God's revelation, we are safe. When you get beyond that, you're not. When you get beyond what God has established as his truth about Christ or any other doctrine that's here in the word of God, you have gone into territory that's outside the word of God. You've left orthodoxy. You've left that which is right. And that's what John is saying. Anyone who transgresses the bounds of divine revelation, they don't abide. And that word we need to explain, abide, what it means. It's one of John's favorite words. You find it in his gospel. You find it in his first, second, third epistles. Abide, mino is the Greek term, and it means to remain to continue in, to persist in the teaching of Christ. One who does not persist in, does not continue in, does not persist in, look what John says, in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Is that not clear? If they don't stay within the bounds of what God has said about Jesus Christ, what he's taught about him, um, like those people in that survey, they do not have God. You have to stay within the confines of teaching of Christ. You see it there, of Christ. The preposition of and the noun Christ. In the Greeks, uh, represents a genitive, genitive case for the noun. And it can either mean from Christ or about Christ. From, if we uh, understand the uh, grammar to mean from what Christ himself taught. Or if we understand the grammar to mean about what was taught about him from the apostles. And you know, it really doesn't matter. Because both agree. Whether Christ himself taught it or the apostles taught it, it, they agree. They teach the same thing. What the apostles taught, in fact, is what Christ wanted them to teach. He instructed them on earth and later through the Holy Spirit. So, whatever they say is consistent with what Christ taught. So, it doesn't matter when we say teaching of Christ, whether it's from him directly, as in John 14, or from an apostle like John here in this text. They agree. And anybody who doesn't do that, they go too far. They do not have God. What what do we mean? One does not have God does not possess God as God. He does not have a saving relationship with God. We can put it this way, he's unsaved. To deny what God says about Jesus Christ is signaling to the entire world that one does not have Christ. One does not have God. One is not saved. This is a litmus test. For anybody who claims to be a Christian. Anybody who comes to me and says I'm a Christian. And 
they want to talk to me about Jesus, one of the things I want to know, what Jesus? Because people have different Jesuses. They don't have the Jesus of the Bible. It's not new. Second Corinthians 11. Paul was concerned about the Corinthian uh, believers that somehow the serpent had deceived their minds and they were going to lose their devotion and simplicity to Christ. And they were being presented, those Corinthians were, with another Jesus. Second Corinthians 11. I want to know which Jesus you believe in. Do you believe in a Jesus who is no higher than a Buddha or Muhammad? That, if you believe in that Jesus, you don't believe in the biblical Jesus. Y'all can say amen. amen. Hmm. But you notice something. The antithesis is in the rest of the verse. It's a divide. The first half refers to unsaved people. The second half refers to believers. The one who b abides in the teaching, he has both the father and son. The one who remains, who persists in the teachings about Christ, he remains loyal to what scripture teaches, the apostolic doctrine, all that about Christ. This one has the father and the son. This possession of father and son, of course, is salvation language. The father and son live in the believer. The believer possesses God. They have a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So, continuing in the, the truth about Christ is one of the marks of a true believer. It's indicative that a person possesses eternal life. You can compare John fourteen twenty three as well. Now, I want to take a moment to give a little more insight here about this teaching of Christ. This not only clues that Jesus is the only way to God, but other truths about him as well. Verse 7, back up the page. And you see, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Well, let's unpack this briefly uh, here. They do not acknowledge, they will not come out and explicitly say, state these deceivers that Jesus has come in the flesh. What that means, that Jesus is God incarnate. That he came in the flesh. It's a denial of his deity and his true humanity. They're antichrists. They're against Christ. They're deceivers. The antichrist. Not talking about the historical figures coming at the end of the age here. He's talking about those who are false teachers who are stand against Christ. or stand instead of Christ. Who teach error about Christ. There are other teachings about Christ. For example, his virgin birth. You know, he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the work of the Holy Spirit. He was not Joseph's biological son. Jesus was conceived unlike anybody else ever in human history or anybody else ever will be. 
It was a miracle, a stupendous miracle beyond our comprehension that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, could become in flesh in the womb of a creature that he himself created. The virgin birth. Now, you don't have to believe when you first hear about Christ that he was born a virgin to be saved, but when you get saved, you will believe that he was born of a virgin. Teaching about Christ, you believe his physical death on the cross, his literal resurrection, and you believe that salvation is, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Teaching about Christ. Here's a, something you need to understand. Any time you hear any teaching that diverts from the truth of Scripture about Christ, understand that that teaching is not from God. You need to turn away from it. Well, the poll of those 18 to 39-year-olds who uh, confess to be Christians, and they uh, equate Jesus with these dead religious leaders, Buddha and Muhammad. Let's hear Jesus' direct words weighing in on this, John chapter 14. Now we can go there. That was all just introduction. I just violate all the homiletical rules. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that, but you know, whatever. I'm going to do what I think is good for us, right? Y'all didn't mind anyway. Thank you, man. I like faithful saints who are just encouraging. Now, John chapter 14, verse 6. This is a familiar text. We all know it. And this is a text. Um, it's in the upper room. You remember, it's on the eve of our Lord's crucifixion. That very night he was being betrayed by Judas. It's carried one of the twelve. And this was a staggering night for the disciples. They had heard that Jesus is going away. He's told them, I'm going to the Father. He's going to leave them. And man, their minds are just messed up. But all of this is transpiring. They know that somebody's going to betray them. They wonder, and they don't know who it is, even though uh, Jesus had dismissed Judas. But they didn't know. So this was tough. And that's why Jesus said, you believe in God, believe in me. He had to settle their hearts, their minds. He was giving them words of comfort. Now, he's going to the cross the next day. He's going to bear the wrath of God for all who believe in him on the cross. But Jesus has given his men comfort. Now, you get down to verse 6. It's Thomas wondering, where are you going, verse 5? Jesus already told them where he's going. I mean, he's going to the, the Father's house, going to prepare a place, and he's going to come back and get him. But Thomas, Thomas is, you know, he's just, like the rest of them, befuddled. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hmm. Before we look at those expressions, the way the truth and the life. We need to establish something here. Jesus' self-identification. If I say that I am the way, you would laugh at me. Rightly so. And say, help him. He's that poor guy. He really has problems. Jesus says, I am the way. If he said it, because it's true, because of who he is. He says, I am. Ego eimi. 
It's the sixth of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am is the Old Testament name for God. It's Jesus is saying that he is Yahweh. This name, I am, is used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You remember when Moses came to the burning bush and was not consumed and he wondered, who shall I say sent me? I am who I am. Sent you. It's God's name. Yahweh. I am when it is used with a predicate, a predicate is something that is asserted about the subject. The subject here, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I am, and then there's the predicate. Um, we'll see that later. Or they're used in this gospel as metaphors. For example, the subject, I am, that's Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the uh, resurrection and the life. Those statements and plus this one, I am the way. All of those good shepherd doors, so on, those are metaphorical expressions telling us about Jesus' relationship of salvation to the world. Jesus says, I am because he is Yahweh. Only Yahweh could say that. Only God could say that. Only a unique person can be these things. And he being God in human flesh is unique. There is no one like him. In case you're wondering about the I am. Perhaps you say, well, maybe it doesn't really... Is that really what Jesus is saying that he is did? Yes, yes. Because actually Jesus uses the I am, ego a me, that's the Greek, I am. He uses that in an unqualified and absolute sense elsewhere in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, verse 26, he uses it. John chapter 8, verse 24, you'll die in your sins unless you understand or believe that I am. And you'll see I am he in your English translations. The pronoun he is not there. It's just simply I am. I read uh, earlier uh, in this service, John chapter 8, verse 58, in that passage from 51 through 59 of John 8. And Jesus said, before Abraham was uh, born, I am. No, I'm not yet 50 years old <laughs> in terms of my humanity, but I am the eternal one. And they got it. That's why they wanted to stone him. They said, see, in Israel, what you did when somebody blasphemed, according to Leviticus, you picked up stones and hurled it at them. You killed the blasphemer. And they presumed that Jesus was blaspheming when he said, I am. They didn't understand. They were standing face to face with the eternal God. So when Jesus uses I am without a metaphor, he's just declaring I'm Yahweh. I am. <laughs> he knew who he was. And he said who I am, who he is. So when we get here, this is none other than Yahweh. In human flesh. The second person of the Godhead. 
who is saying, I am the way. The way. The absolute way. There are many roads to Norman, Oklahoma, right? Many roads to Oklahoma City. But there's only one road to heaven. There are not many of them. No, 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 just one. In fact, this word way in the original, it could be translated road. Jesus is that path. He is that way. He is that road. Singularly, the way. That's why he says the way. Absolutely the way. It's the way to the Father. He is the means of salvation. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 lets us know that he is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 5 9. So he says to Thomas and all the rest who are in the upper room with him, disciples hearing us, oh, Jesus is the way. How we get to the Father's house? Through Jesus. Remember, I I quoted a moment ago, John chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus said, I am the door. Enter through me to be saved. He doesn't brook any competitors. (laughs) It's not door number one, number two, number three. Pick one. No, there's only one. He says he's the truth. The truth embodies divine truth. John 1, 14, um, grace and truth. Jesus' teaching showed that he is the truth. Think about this for a moment with me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said there, I say to you 13 times. Why is that important? Because... The rabbis and the scribes, whenever they were teaching, the Jewish rabbis and scribes, these religious elite and leaders, uh, what they would do, they would say something and they'd quote Rabbi so-and-so said. And that gave them credibility. That gave them authority. A rabbi so-and-so said. And in fact, unless you quoted a rabbi, the Jews wouldn't listen to you because your authority wasn't self or in yourself. It had to come from a previous rabbi. But Jesus didn't quote a rabbi. He didn't quote Rabbi Hillel or Shammai or whomever. Jesus just said, I say to you. And when people finished hearing it, Matthew records in Matthew seven twenty eight about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke as one having authority, not as a scribes. Because he's the truth. We read in scripture many times, and I read it early in John chapter 8, where Jesus said, truly, truly. In the original is, amen, amen. And we, amen, as we would say. He would start his saying off with, amen, amen. We conclude what we've heard with an amen. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm front loading what I'm about to say. Amen, amen. 
Because Jesus said, what I'm about to say, I want to impress upon you, this comes with absolute authority. When he says, truly, truly, he's saying, amen, 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 I am giving to you that which is authoritative. It's absolute truth. Absolute. And this, by the way, has no precedent in the Old Testament. There is no one in the Old Testament, no prophet saying, truly, truly, I say to you. No prophet. They always said, thus saith the Lord, didn't they? 3,808 times there's that formula, thus saith the Lord. No one in the Old Testament said, "Um, truly, truly, I say to you. In fact, there, there is no ancient Jewish literature that has this expression. When Jesus came onto the scene and said, Amen, Amen, I say to you, that was new. That was unprecedented because he is Yahweh. Absolute truth. You remember this statement Jesus made uh, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The great Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 8, says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, let me tell you what happened. When Jesus says, my word, Will not pass away. He's equating his word. Or it's an equivalent of what Isaiah said. In Isaiah 48. When he claims that his words won't pass away. God's words will stand forever. There, there's an equivalence there. If you talk like that. We'd dismiss you out of hand. But Jesus said, my words will remain when heaven and earth are gone. Walk out there after this service. You remember that. The surfaces you walk on out there, you look at the trees, the grass. One day that's going to be gone. But Jesus' words will remain. Ben Witherington said this, no ordinary, extraordinary person, whether teacher or prophet, spoke this way. End of quote. He's right Jesus is no ordinary person he's God incarnate divine authority the next thing our Lord says here is verse 6 the life the life the life here is a reference to eternal life he can give life because life is in himself do understand all of us are derivatives we derive our life from him, right? That's not the way it is with Jesus. He has life in himself. He gives eternal life to those who believe. In fact, Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, calls him the author of life. In the New American Standard Bible, um, it's translated prince of life, and that's really what it means, author of life. Jesus has already stated before here this truth in John 10.10 10, 
The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life, eternal life comes from Christ. In fact, this whole gospel is about that. John chapter uh, 20, verse 31. But these have been written, the signs that are in this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. is the life. Now, he says here, in verse 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. It's clearly, he's the only one. Whose word are you going to take? Somebody who answers a poll? Or what Jesus said. I know who gets my vote. Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something else. It says no one comes to the Father but by me. There's something else that's stunning. In Matthew chapter 11. First, you can only come to the Father through Jesus Christ. Trust him as Savior and Lord to get to heaven to the Father. But person can't even do that unless Jesus enables him to do so. Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 and 29 and 30 are favorites among Christians. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And man, that verse has been used and misused because they don't even understand the background. If it's all, oh, yes, Jesus said, come to me. I'm, I'm weary and laden. He said, I had a hard day at work. Jesus said, come to me. It has nothing to do with your hard day at work. Nobody's quoting verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And note this, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Did you get that? A person can't even know who the Father is, what he is like, and all of that, unless Jesus Christ wills to reveal who the Father is to that person. People just don't get up and say, oh, I'm going to know all about God. No, you're not. Not savingly. You can't know him savingly as Jesus wills to reveal him to a person. Not my words. Jesus's. Whose word are you going to take? I'm voting for Jesus. You know why? Because he said they're going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And guess what? He did it. So I'll listen to his word. Now, let me uh, 
give you another text. Just listen. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. number of things are told to us in this verse. Number one, there are not a bunch of gods. <laughs> not true living gods. There's only one living and true God. That's the God of the Bible. The God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God of the Jews. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ. This God is the one and only God. The Creator. That God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's one mediator that can go between that God and men. God who became a man. The man Christ Jesus. And that's the person that can get you to heaven. I'm not going to heaven because of any other reason than Jesus Christ. If God said, why should I let you into heaven? Which you won't. This is just hypothetical. I'm going to say, where's Jesus? He's right over there. So he's the one. I'm with him. And in my playful analogy, God would say, God the Father would say, come on in. You're with my son. It's how you get to heaven. He's the only way. Let's bow together and pray. Our God and our Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for your word, its truth, and what it does for the souls of men, all who will believe. We pray for any here in this place this morning who has not yielded him or herself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray that you bring them to him. Pray you save them. Thank you for these truths that comfort our hearts and who are believers. We might uh, even rest more confidently and deeply on the person of Christ. The unique, exclusive one, the only one to you. Continue to bless these truths in the minds of your people for our strengthening and edification. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.